Hi, welcome to a special episode of the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. This is a special series of five episodes in collaboration with the 14th Annual Learning Ideas Conference in New York City. This year, the conference is fully online with participants joining from around the world. In each episode, I talk with several speakers from the Learning Ideas Conference to highlight the interesting work and ideas that they will be presenting at the conference, and also to find out what they are excited about in the future of learning. Welcome to day one of the 14th Annual Learning Ideas Conference taking place June 14th, 2021. And thank you so much for tuning in to the first in a series of special episodes of the Art and Science of Learning podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure for me to work on this special series and speak to some of those who will be presenting at the conference. They are a group of incredible leaders in the world of higher education and workplace learning who are doing inspiring work in the programs that they are creating, the strategies they're using, and the technologies they have built. These conversations are a snapshot into some of the most interesting people and work being done in the world of learning. And for those attending the conference, they're a wonderful introduction to some of the speakers that will be presenting. I hope you will enjoy these conversations as much as I have. In this episode, I speak to four individuals who are presenting on this day of the conference. You can find more information and links to their work in the show notes, as well as the timestamp at which their interview will be in this episode. These individuals include the Director of Innovation at the Defense Acquisition University, which is the Department of Defense in the United States of America, and she will be talking about user-centered design as a way of creating engaging and effective workplace learning for those at the Department of Defense. I will also be talking to the founder of an AI company who is speaking to me from Italy, and his company has developed a virtual reality that removes the barriers of the virtual reality headset, allowing people to truly step in and interact in a virtual reality world in a much more natural way. I also speak to a professor from Teachers College at Columbia University in New York City, and he will be talking about a project-based class that he took fully online and how he made it a success and the lessons he learned along the way. My fourth guest is from Sydney, Australia, and she will discuss how her and her team at Kaplan Professional design engaging compliance training for frontline workers in the finance industry. But before we jump into those conversations, I'm very pleased to first be talking to the founder and chair of the Learning Ideas Conference, Dr. David Gorelnik, who is also president and CEO of Kaleidoscope Learning. Thank you very much, David, for joining me on the podcast and giving a little overview of the conference. Thank you. It's great to to be here talking with you about this. 
It's a wonderful conference, and I'm really looking forward to it starting. Before we begin, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. My background is really at the intersection of education and technology and, and sort of along with cognitive science. So how do people think and learn? How can you know we use technology to create better educational experiences? So I did my PhD way back in an interdisciplinary program. Over time, started Kaleidoscope Learning, which does online learning for a mix of companies and universities following along the same themes, create these, these um, immersive, interesting experiences that people can have using technology. The conference itself uh, has been a big part of my life. I started the conference in uh, 2008, focused at the time on workplace learning and then evolving into its current iteration for this year with the idea that we really you know, want to reimagine and reinvent educational experiences and that technology allows us to do a lot of really interesting, creative things and reach an audience at a large scale. And all that's been kind of related to my work through, throughout my career. Wonderful. And so the workplace learning and this year, higher education being part of it as well. Incredibly important aspects of learning and learning technologies and how that's been evolving extremely quickly in the recent times, which is a very exciting thing. And the conference is usually also in New York, held at Columbia University. But this year, of course, it's all fully online, bringing a very international audience that usually descends on New York, now coming from their corner of the world. Yeah, no, I'm sure everybody misses the, the conference dinners and the, the personal interactions, but really looking forward to this year's conference and some ways set up for people to be able to interact with each other online through the talks and also through the event system, you know, try to replicate as much of that part of the experience. And it's really nice to be able to reach uh, some people who just wouldn't be able to take the time to make the trip or for other reasons. Really looking forward to the group that we're going to have this year. Absolutely. And of course, people can still join the conference, seeing as it's online, they can join at any point and register and be a part of the conversation. Yes, absolutely. If you, you can decide at the last minute or even, you know, into the conference itself that you want to register and join and, and absolutely people are welcome to do so. All the talks are being recorded. So as a registered participant, people will have access after the conference and moving forward to all of the recorded talks. And so that's something else that, that you can get people hear about this a little bit later and want to register even in mid-conference, totally fine to do that and join in and eventually catch up on anything that you've missed. Wonderful. That's really good. And of course, these uh, this episode and the following four episodes will highlight some of the speakers who will be speaking at the conference and give a synopsis of who they are and what they're going to be talking about. But with you, I would like to really get a bigger idea of the conference itself. So what is the essence of the conference? You gave a little bit of an insight, but can you tell me a little bit more about what the essence of the conference is and what people can expect? Absolutely. We're, we're really at a time now, I think even, even more than ever, to have the opportunity to rethink what education and workplace learning can be. So there's been a tendency to rely on what have evolved as traditional educational methods. Um, you've got someone in the front of the room who's a teacher. The focus is on teaching, often necessarily, not necessarily on learning, but often on teaching. People have to memorize things and take tests. These are common in a lot of educational experiences, both universities and at younger ages, and then in, in the workplace. And those methods really evolved primarily because of the need to scale up. You know, in the really old days, people learned by being an apprentice. You would learn to be a master craftsman by working with an expert and you would practice doing things. You would learn skills. You would have a coach, all these really, really useful and helpful educational methods. And then when we had the need to teach more people and for more people to learn, the only ways that really made sense were ways that involved one person and a large class. But with technology, we can create experiences that are personalized, that are engaging and, and interesting and immersive. You practice things, you can learn you know, anything by doing in some way or another if, you, if the right environment is built. 
And we have the opportunity now to really rethink what educational experiences could be and education's impact on society. And so this conference tries to bring together people from a variety of different areas, from different countries, with different interests and backgrounds, different creative views about what we can do to make use of technology to create a very, very different type of educational experience at all levels. Absolutely. Really important. The conference is now coming a year into what has been a really big upheaval and, and a different experience in all types of learning as so many people have gone online and have been learning in very different ways. So what do you find most interesting about this year's conference, the topics and also maybe the way that it's being conducted? I, I think we have a really interesting range of topics. And I think that's in some ways the excitement is partly because of the, the sort of the breadth and the, the, the different things that we're integrating. We have a keynote on wearable technologies. We have a keynote on integrating learning science and user-centered design. We have keynote on museum experiences, one on artificial intelligence, one on the future of workplace learning in particular. So all of these things and so many other talks to relate. And as the conference as a whole, I think one of the underlying themes is really thinking about how we can impact society. You know, we're at a, a really, particularly in the U.S., but not only in the U.S., at a very, very interesting time right now. People are challenged to find and interpret and process information and think critically about it. There's a lot of information out there, everything, you know, from deciding who to vote for to what decisions you want to make in your day-to-day -day life depend a lot on information that you find out there and what you do with it. And there's sort of been a focus on the facts and the knowledge rather than how do you analyze it? How do you synthesize it? How do you know what to believe? That's true, I think, at every level, including day-to-day -day life and also within the workplace. Workplace roles are generally about judgment. They're not necessarily about simply following step one, step two, step three. You know, that's what people can really bring to an organization. And so mm -hmm. with the group that we have at the conference, we can have a chance to integrate a lot of different thoughts and different ideas and different technologies. So I'm excited to see everything from what can we do to, with wearable technologies to different perspectives on artificial intelligence, which is part of my own background, to you know, other ideas about rethinking and redoing the way that we've traditionally seen education and workplace learning. And it's such a wonderful thing about the conference that it does bring together individuals, both academics, industry insiders, practitioners, from very different fields of learning, but different aspects of learning. And that's an incredibly important thing in learning because you really do need to have a glimpse of the big picture in order to be able to pull the best resources, the best methodologies to enhance the learning that you are specifically working on. So this is a wonderful thing that it brings together so many different types of people from literally all around the world. As even in this podcast, people will see from Korea, from Italy, from Spain, from everywhere around the world. So that's wonderful. But what do you hope people will take away from this conference? It's jam-packed with wonderful conversations and interesting talks. What do you hope people will take away? A couple of things. At the highest level, the most, the most important thing in some ways to me is, is inspiration. You know, walk away from the conference, be inspired mm -hmm. to think creatively, feel free to think creatively and try out new ideas, feel that there is an audience and a cohort of people out there who are doing things differently, thinking about what else we can do and, and feeling that you really have the opportunity to make an impact and this is a time to do it. You know, along with that is sort of just the idea that there are 
different approaches out there and some from different fields, as you mentioned. So we're integrating fields that are related in terms of you know, cognitive science and, and technology and education, but also looking at those from the perspective of you know, how are things done in different fields? People's educational experiences are competing with their experiences in society and in the rest of their lives now, right? So it used to be people would go to school and school was kind of, you know, school was school and workplace learning was kind of school, but in work. Yes. And, you know, in some ways people maybe just sort of expected a certain kind of experience. We have the opportunity now to create much better and different experiences and also people's expectations have changed. Mm -hmm. you, know, you go online and play a really fun game and then you don't want to come into an online learning experience at work and find yourself reading some text and clicking the next button and answering a few questions. You, you want something that's more aligned with your own goals and also with the kinds of things that you've seen elsewhere. And so I think there's something to that as well. Um, so yeah, so the big, big picture is really, I think, inspiration, exposure, creativity, and relating what we're doing to society and sort of trying to, to take a, a step back and see how can we really prepare people to live happy, productive, thoughtful lives from all the way through through their, their work experiences. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And uh, work will continuously be more and more of a learning environment. And so making that effective and enjoyable is such an important part. It is such a huge space, uh, learning and workplace learning in higher ed. And you've been working in it for a long time. What are you really excited about now in this field? One thing I'm excited about is artificial intelligence and its potential to create, to help us create personalized, individualized learning experiences. This is an area that I've been working in for a really long time, and it kind of had some uh, some dead times, right? There was a time where you didn't even really want to say that you worked in AI because people <laughs> would kind of look at you like, why are you working in a field that's not really around anymore? <laughs> so it's had a resurgence. And yes. I think this point, most of what I'm seeing out there is a resurgence more in terms of using, you know, in terms of analytics, in terms of trying to evaluate people. And I think there are some uses there, but I see absolutely huge impact potentially in the experiences people can have, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine if you had your own personalized coach who could walk you through things and recommend things to you that you might be interested in, and then put you in positions to have these really, really great experiences and, and that were intended for you that would be based on the idea that this that this system or this coach you know felt natural and human but also understood what you like might be able to suggest things that you didn't know about it doesn't just mean following only the things that you know about but it would be things that might be appropriate for you personally and I think that there's really a lot that we can do with AI um, moving forward and that we're maybe now in a better position to do some of that than we were a number of years ago when I was first working in that field and so there's maybe the right level of interest and advancement to make some some big leaps in the near future. Absolutely. It's definitely on the cusp of quite a lot of development that is happening in that in that area and definitely one to watch. Well, David, thank you so much. I'm I'm really looking forward to the conference and listeners can get a glimpse of what is to come from the speakers that will follow in the following episodes. And thank you very much for talking to me about it and for organizing such a wonderful gathering of great minds and great ideas and people from around the world. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here and uh, looking very much forward to the conference and, and of course your participation in it as well. My next guest is Dr. Alicia Sanchez, and she is Director of Innovation at Defense Acquisition University at the Department of Defense in Virginia, USA. She is giving this keynote speech titled Learning on the Seam, an intersection between learning science and the user-centered design. Welcome, Alicia, to the podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to get to speak with you today. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your work and what you will be talking about in your talk. But before we get into that, can you please tell me more about yourself? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I have had a really strange path to where I am. I have a PhD in modeling simulation uh, that I got from University of Central Florida, which is in Orlando, Florida. And so I grew up in this very strange place where we had a combination of military and entertainment, right? So we have all the theme parks, but we also had an incredibly strong military presence there, likely because of all of the theme parks. And so when we think about modeling and simulation for learning, it was sort of a natural evolution and a really great place to really start making the connections between what we consider to be typical education and learning kinds of constructs and folding that in with things like experiential learning and simulation and games. So I was super fortunate to grow up there, if you will, you know, from the time I was like 19, that's when the growing up happens for most of us in this incredibly rich culture. And so just out of my PhD, I did a small stint at Old Dominion University in the Virginia uh, Simulation Modeling and Analysis Center, VMASC, so Virginia Modeling Analysis and Simulation Center, they'll kill me if I get it wrong. <laughs> and then I came to Defense Acquisition University and I had spent most of my adult life after I grew up really focusing on training and how we could use technology to really bolster that and these rich experiences. But I joined DAU because it was at that time a more traditional educational institution. Mm -hmm. And when we think about, you know, using simulations and games for training, it's, it's obvious, right? It's simple. It's a one-to-one -one relationship. When we think about using it for learning, we start to have to peel away different labels and it becomes more sophisticated. And so right out of grad school, I decided to take that challenge. And it's been incredibly rewarding. I've been there 15 years now. That's really interesting. And of course, the innovations in technology are certainly always leading edge in Department of Defense. It must be the same in terms of the learning and the simulations and the type of learning technologies you deal with must be absolutely fascinating. You would think that. <laughs> I, okay. can, I, I bet lots of people think that because, you know, DOD, we've got huge budgets. We've got these crazy simulations and simulators of all this real world stuff. But really, when it comes down to thinking about education and learning, it really is somewhat, I think we're not in a, a very different place than most people are. Do we have a lot of really interesting theoretical things? Does the canvas change every two to three years of what technology could be used as enablers moving forward? Absolutely. And the COVID pandemic certainly has accelerated a few things. But but I definitely don't want to give the impression that we're so far ahead of anyone else because we are certainly not. We are a wonderful organization who are learning as we go, just like many others, and really looking for the right opportunities to fit into what becomes a very special technological infrastructure when we think about the security at the DOD level, the Department of Defense level. We're handicapped in some ways, but we are fortunate enough to get to push the envelope. And so it's super exciting. That's really interesting. And so you're going to be talking about the intersection between learning science and user-centered design and user-centered design being such an important aspect in this field. 
So can you tell me what is the essence of the talk you're going to be giving? You know, I'm a learning scientist, I think, at heart, first and foremost. And so I, like many of our attendees, have spent a greater part of our adulthood, again, I don't know why adulthood seems to be the theme today, but it is, a greater part of my adulthood focusing on what does the science of learning tell us? What do we know? How can we begin to incorporate these best practices from decades of research? And then there's sort of user-centered design, which kind of sits next to it, but isn't necessarily always part of it. And I think that that is the essence of my talk, that when we think about the scene, the intersection between learning science and user-centered design, learning science as this great theoretical body of knowledge about the way people learn has not always included taking a very user-centered focus. User-centered design has embodied a lot of all of these great skills and tactics and resources for getting to these amazing educational outcomes, but they haven't necessarily always adopted what the learning science has told us. And so how do we start to put those two together to actually advance the body? You know, user-centered design is a process through which the theoretical parts of learning science should be realized. But for some reason, learning science has sort of been something that gives us the ability to feel super comfortable that we know what's best because it's based in learning science. And user-centered design has been so focused on the user and you know has not really addressed and the learning science tells us. So I'm super interested in finding the right place for those two not disciplines, because one is the process through which and one is sort of the body of research, but the, the seam that allows us to really start leveraging both in a way that I think could advance the way our students learn. Mm, absolutely. And in your work, how do you bring those two sides together? Maybe an example of how you make that possible. Sure. And so, as I said, we're not killing it and the best at it either. It's certainly something that is a little bit new for our university to take on a user-centered approach because our particular student workload or our particular workforce of students are professionals. We're really a corporate learning organization, if you think about it that way. So we're taking people who are out in the field doing their job and we're providing them with what is often mandatory for them training. So when we say we have a captive audience, we're verging on bondage right, with these students, which really changes the motivational construct that people are coming to us for. And so the way that we have started to bridge that seam is we've always had a good foundation of learning science. Uh, Like a, a silly example is that we know that feedback at the right time and structured properly from learning science and decades of research has told us that can help people more effectively learn from their mistakes and retain information those sorts of elements. And so it's easy to say, okay, we know when to give feedback. And we know based on other bodies of research that this is a type of feedback that should advance the students most efficiently in their learning trajectories. But in all of that learning science research, we never ask the students what feedback would be meaningful to them, right? And so, you know, just as the most superficial example, hey, let's ask them what feedback at this point in your learning process 
would be meaningful to you instead of making the assumptions. We're very, you know, trust and have our assumptions, but verify and validate at this point and bring them in and say, what would this have done for you here now? What would this have done for you? How would you have liked to have heard this? Because we know that it could be incredibly effective, but we don't know if we're doing it right for the learner. What a great example of incorporating education science, learning science with user-centered design. That is absolutely fantastic. Did you find something striking in what your users were telling you that you weren't expecting in that example? Yes, certainly. I think that it's super easy, especially for us who work in trajectory-based settings where there's learning pathways that are so clearly defined. And we know that you're going to take these things and then you're going to take these things. It's so easy to think about how do we get someone from point A to point B and all of the things that we assume that they have recalled and remembered from point A to get them through point B and ultimately to point C. And so what we did find out was that in a lot of these sorts of examples, we really needed to bring back parts. And that's a a subtopic of research and interest of mine has always been experiences and memory. And so when we started to really deconstruct, you know, here's the feedback that you're gonna receive at this point because this is what it should have been. We were inappropriately making assumptions about what they recalled from the foundational steps Hmm. and how those could advance them into the next steps. It turns out that our feedback was likely more, it needed to be more foundational, but we, you know, they've already taken this. So why would we drag them through it again? And it turns out that we just weren't appropriately thinking about that recall. What an important takeaway and what an important learning for those who are creating the learning experiences and how to make it better. That is really good example. Shows the importance of really needing to have that user-centered design. So what do you think is a really important point that people should understand in trying to incorporate user-centered design in incorporating it with the learning science. What do you think maybe some people would benefit from hearing? So I think user-centered design is so interesting. I actually take classes all the time because I'm a lifelong learner. It's who I am. I wish that I didn't, but I can't stop myself, right? You too? Yes. I I bet you are. So I actually take a lot of classes um, on user-centered design because I'm a lifelong learner and I think that's just who I am. And I think that that was really my initial foray into starting to make the connections between user-centered design and learning science. However, when you take these classes on user-centered design from any creative outlet, I think it's easy to forget that this is actually a body of science unto itself, that people are highly trained in how to appropriately enact and trigger Mm. and how to really get, what are the, the tactics that are used to really derive at this? And it becomes very researchy really quickly, right? And you've like, in my head, I was like, oh, this is super cool. It's super applied. We're gonna do this cool activity. And it turns out, you know, the methodology of how feedback and using the user in your loop is elicited became again, much more sophisticated than I expected it to be. And I had, I'm sorry to all your user-centered design fans. I had in some ways discounted that there is an entire profession out there who does an amazing job at this. And I think one of the things that I learned was that these are actual employable skills that we can apply. And when we combine the two, that's where the power starts to happen. So in my talk, I hope to 
give a couple of fun activities and demonstrate how we might collect the right information. But collecting that information is half, three quarters maybe of the battle, processing it and making sure that you are still eliciting the right learning trajectory from the masses is where things get dicey. I mean, it's really hard to get enough users to really feel completely sound in the decisions that we make every day about, you know, just as the example of feedback, I might've had two people tell me, oh, this is what feedback I needed then. And they might've been an incredible outlier to the whole community. So how do we really get past, present and future students to be part of the process? And how do we really elicit a culture of, if you help us, we can help you better. We want you to learn better, faster, with the least amount of friction that is possible. And how do we really engage them in our process and trust them enough to be part of that process? That's such an important thing about the way you collaborate. And as you said, trusting, having that trust and building that relationship to be able to bring all the different sides together well. Well, I I mean, I look forward to hearing more in your talk and the activities sound like they will certainly provide the participants something to come away with and to put it into practice. But what do you hope overall that people will take away from your talk? I say the same thing, I think, every time I'm given the opportunity to speak to people. And it's, I hope that they find one thing that they can employ that makes the the learning that they offer, the position that they take, the way they think about it, just a little bit different. And it's so hard when you're at a conference with so many smart people, right, to try to actually affect some sort of change. Mm. But I think that that's probably what every keynote speaker is striving Mm -hmm. for. Let my enthusiasm, let my love for this topic, my passion, just make the tiniest little tweak in the way someone thinks about how they position things and let that sort of out into the wild and see what comes back. Hopefully it is enhancements and better things and inspiring people to think about, well, wow, maybe I should take a look at this body of work. Maybe I should do a little more research into this. And I love getting the ideas back from participants and figuring out how I can evolve my thoughts. Sometimes it's, wow, you know, you've thought about this, but did you ever think about this? And that's what is really the most meaningful in the end to me, the ability to continue to learn and continue to grow. As I know so many attendees of this conference are interested in doing as well. It's just so great to see a community like this. Absolutely. And as you said, to learn from each other and be inspired and having those sparks that we can follow up on and, uh, and investigate further and connect with each other and discuss is, is really a fantastic opportunity to do that. And in terms of the work that you're doing and the, that your department is doing, is there somewhere where people can get more information? You know, I, I have a blog, certainly, and I don't mean to be a self, self-promotion, but unfortunately, because we're Department of Defense, a lot of our stuff does not see the wild. I can tell you there is an organization called ADL, and that's the Advanced Distributed Learning Organization for the Department of Defense in the U.S., and they really have been our technology partner and our sort of modernization and futurization handholder, Mm -hmm. and they are able to be much more open kimono with the types of advancements and the technologies and where we're going with this and that. I would recommend everyone hit them. Otherwise, you know, I'm always happy to share what we're doing. We speak often at conferences and we don't do the best job of publishing. And I think that's something that we should work more on. 
we certainly share across DOD, but we, we don't often get out into the wild as much as we should. They keep us in small bunkers and <laughs> we all have to do like this. Well, you're certainly sharing now. You're certainly sharing now and at the conference. And these are wonderful insights into the type of work you do and the importance of bringing the learner into the process of designing good learning. And that is always wonderful to hear about and to see how people are doing that. Thank you very much for sharing your work. And I really appreciate you being on the podcast. No, thank you so much for having me. I will come back anytime, probably too many times if you allow me to. And thank you to the entire audience for being not held captive today, for choosing this. (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) Thank you, Alicia. Thank you. Thank you. My next guest is Dr. Fernando Salvetti. He is the founder and managing partner of LogosNet, an international advanced simulation company. Actually, he is giving four different talks on different aspects of the technology that his company designs. Welcome, Fernando, to the podcast. Hi, and thank you. I'm very happy to be here today with you and all our uh, attendees uh, at the Learning Ideas Conference. For me, I have uh, many years I'm used to, to attend, and mm. since last year, also virtually. Uh, a few words about me. Mm. The name is Fernando, the surname is Salvetti, Italian pronunciation. I'm uh, an educator. Since 1996, I'm used to design and deliver with uh, a team of experts, subject matter experts, into different verticals. First of all, uh, corporate learning, Mm -hmm. then uh, medical simulation, and schools plus museums. Very different verticals, large spectrum, same approach, visualization, interaction, immersivity. A key word from a methodological perspective, simulation. So what we do is advanced simulation because uh, it's immersive and interactive. And we do that uh, since 1996 from Turin, Italy, since 2001 from Lugano, Switzerland. Mm since 2006 from Berlin, Germany, since 2016 from Houston, Texas, US. Different locations, same, exactly the same job, instructional design and delivery. Fantastic. It's like a virtual reality, isn't it? You described it as a virtual reality without the goggles. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the technology looks like? What does the experience look like? It is a virtual reality without the goggles and without other wearable uh, augments, like mm-hmm. joysticks, uh, active pens, and so on. Okay. Because uh, in our vision, uh, we have to naturally interact yes. both into the virtual world and possibly mainly into the real world. So we perform into the real online platform, virtual reality, skipping the glasses because uh, wearing glasses is not the best uh, to boost the team spirit, mm-hmm. to boost the team coordination, to talk each other even if remotely, because wearing uh, virtual reality glasses means uh, making ourselves blind. Mm. This is our basic assumption. 
and uh, performing a virtual reality into a platform, a cooperative platform, designed mainly to, to boost uh, cognitive, metacognitive competences, as well as behavioral skills. Right. In our opinion, is a better and more involving adventure if performed without glasses. I think people can get a much better idea on your website, e-real.net. And, uh, and you have beautiful videos illustrating exactly what this looks like, where you bring together virtual reality and reality in a space in, in such an incredibly beautiful way. So definitely a great place for people to go and take a look on what this experience looks Thank like. Thank you, yes. And please, if you have the chance to, to jump into our website, connect with us. Let us know what do you think. Fantastic. And uh, if you wish to, to test something with us, let me know. Wonderful. That's a great opportunity. You will have four different talks and all of them connect in the sense that you're using eReal in very different ways. So can you tell me a little bit about the talks you will be giving and what you will yes. be discussing? I'm expected to start with the speech analysis tool. Speech analysis is a way to allow people to measure their the spoken words mm-hmm to understand uh, their own tone of voice, pace, rhythm, to compare with the spoken words and the paraverbal and not verbal elements from other colleagues. Because altogether into an immersive, uh, real physical environment, people are expected to perform, maybe to face a challenging situation, and at the same time, they are individually recorded. The system in real time upload into the cloud and download within our server into the physical classroom all the verbal performances of all the learners and the instructor or the teacher or the learning facilitator. It depends on your philosophy teaching philosophy, may provide exactly a feedback based on what the machine, the tool, the speech analysis tool, was uh, captioning Mm -hmm. about uh, the individual performances. This is a way to solve uh, an old uh, problem within the behavioral training. Usually into behavioral training, we depend on the teacher. But the teacher is a human being. A system, a tool, is a little bit better than a human being to measure something that could be really measured, like tone, pace, emotional cues. And then the real human being, the the teacher, is able to provide very precisely a feedback. This is... uh, basically our speech analysis tool Mm -hmm. and is mainly part of the medical simulation settings because in medical simulation there are a couple of key very key questions first of all fixation errors when people are assuming that there is an only and unique way to solve a problem this sometimes could be really the unique way other times could be a fixation Hmm. error. And maybe a life is in danger. So mainly medical simulation, analyzing in a deep and really analytic way 
all the spoken uh, words, the verbal communication, right. at the end could save life. At least it could be uh, provide some help to save more life. Mm -hmm. So this is why we started with medical simulation and then we exported into public speaking, into negotiation, into conflict management uh, settings. Yes. So the typical uh, soft skills related uh, settings. Wonderful. What do you think pedagogically, what is the way that these tools are best used? What is the essence of the way that it is used? Into a physical place, mm -hmm. we are used to say into a digital place, both physical and digital, mm -hmm. because there are brick and mortar walls yes. that are projected by virtual objects. Right. So by virtual objects, we are overlaying the real world with uh, a number of information, mm -hmm. like if you were wearing augmented reality glasses, but without being in need to wear those type of glasses. So keeping yourself feeling very naturally the experience, mm -hmm. you can look at uh, data projected over the walls that are mirroring uh, the performance of the team belonging to, or sometimes your own individual performance, like uh, the speech analysis tool. So at the end, the experience is really enriched, enhanced mm. by the visualization, because we do not only visualize uh, realistic uh, elements, but we also overlay information about what is happening right there in the right within the classroom. Right. So this is really the merging of the virtual world into a real classroom. This is the pure essence of Irian. Then uh, we developed also the purely online experience, mm -hmm. skipping, as I was saying, because feeling natural, ongoing, the learning experience, in our opinion, is very better. Mm -hmm. But online, because coronavirus, because the physical distance, the different geographies, yeah. you can have something more compared with other existing purely online experiences. Even if, in my opinion, the pure essence of real is the physical classroom, mm -hmm. not only the platform. I love the platform. I'm part of the team that developed the platform. Mm -hmm. But uh, my, my best experiences are uh, the ones embedded, physically yes. embedded within the area classroom. Absolutely. I mean, you're making it possible to be doing it across distance with the online platform. But the physical platform, really the walls turn into not only a virtual reality where you interact and feel like you're in a specific space, but then some of the walls are also, or overlaid, are information and measurement for you to be constantly understanding how your learning is going. So it's a really fascinating combination of being in a physical space, making it feel like you're stepping into a virtual reality space, but then also overlaying it with all this data that is important for the learning. Really fascinating. So with all this, what is most interesting? I mean, it's a very interesting technology and must be a wonderful experience. What kind of feedback have you received from students and teachers using your tool? The feedback are highly positive. We measure it many times uh, 
the outcomes from traditional classrooms mm -hmm. or from more traditional settings, also online uh, mm -hmm. virtual reality settings, and uh, the irreal virtual uh, platform or the irreal uh, digital classroom that is technically a hybrid uh, simulation setting, part of the mixed reality kingdom, let's say. And in both cases, uh, if we compare the outputs, the perceived uh, outputs from, uh, in terms of learning, from a traditional classroom and a traditional platform, mm -hmm. or the two real versions available, in both cases, uh, approximately 84% more effective real Mm. in both the solutions compared with a more traditional approach. Wonderful. Then we have many numbers because we tested and dry rendered six different areas. Mm -hmm. But overall, I can say that cognitive retention as well as learner direct activation as well as, let's say, the, the transformation from abstract knowledge to something mastered also at a behavioral level. Yes. Are very better as an real output compared with the traditional classrooms. Wonderful. For sure. The guys that are interested in those type of results, so sometimes we perform these analysis by ourselves, other mm -hmm. times, is the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston. They are part of the perimeter of the Harvard Medical School that performed those type of measurement. Other times uh, was the Polytechnic School of Milan doing so in order to provide us uh, with a third party, let's say, measurement. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can say that the output uh, were and are more or less the same. Fantastic. That is really interesting. So what do you hope that people will take away from your talks? What is the essence you think people should take away? Having uh, at least some curiosity for the speech analysis tool mm -hmm. and just in case uh, testing it into a simulation setting. Uh, understanding uh, we have a couple of other talks about uh, digital learning uh, and about uh, the escape uh, rooms. Uh, that you can engage people with a gamified approach online into a VR platform, skipping the glasses. In the case of the uh, escape room, uh, someone will also propose to, to jump into the platform and to have directly a small dry run. And uh, the fourth speech is about an experience still ongoing in Italy within a leading insurance company, where um, organizational network analysis and some other people analytics are uh, pairing with data, mainly relevant for HR people. And it's pretty new because uh, it's not so easy finding people analytics used yes. in order to design and deliver uh, training program. That's great. Well, then hopefully people will be taking up the opportunity to test it out and give it a run. And it looks like a wonderful experience. Before we leave, I just would like to ask you more broadly, what are you excited about in that's coming up in the learning space? 
multimedia, in my opinion, is uh, something that is expected to grow exponentially. Yes. Endless opportunities um, in that, isn't there? Yeah. As you're proving. <laughs> Not only me. Yes, exactly. As well as uh, interactive and immersive technologies for learning, mm -hmm. according, for instance, to Garner Group. Garner is the leading uh, ICT advisor worldwide and is also the Logosnet advisor mm -hmm. for ICT, according to, to Garner. By a couple of years from now, 34% approximately of all the main educational institutions worldwide will try to embed both on-site and online immersive and interactive technologies mm -hmm. to boost, to enhance the learning experience. This is uh, for schools, according to them. This is for corporate training. I'm assuming this could be also for museums. Really exciting times. And thank you so much for sharing the wonderful work that you do. And I look forward to attending your four different talks. So thank you so much for being on the Very podcast. Very kind of you. Really happy to be being invited here. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you for now. The best to all. Thank <laughs> you. My next guest is Professor Gary Natriello from Teachers College at Columbia University in New York, and his talk is titled Taking Project-Based Learning Online, an important topic and something that I'm sure many people have experienced for better or worse in the last year. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more about it, what he's done at Teachers College. So thank you so much, Gary, for joining me on the podcast. Sure, happy to be here. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself before we discuss the topic of your talk? Sure, so as you noted, I'm a professor at Teachers College and I've been uh, there since 1984 and have done a variety of things. Started out in philosophy and social sciences. I'm trained as a sociologist and over the years moved over to the Department of Human Development where I now teach in the cognitive science program and uh, I direct the program in learning analytics. The essence of your talk. Can you tell me what, what is your talk going to be about? Yeah, so the talk was really inspired by all the changes we had to make as a result of going online relatively quickly uh, in the past year. And the talk is about a course where, that we've used, we've taught over the years using the project-based learning method. And we've taught it a number of times, but almost in every case on campus. And so we got very comfortable teaching it on campus. We, our students got comfortable doing project-based learning in a campus environment. And all of a sudden, a year ago, we found out we were gonna be teaching it, but we were gonna be teaching it online. And so the talk is really about the challenges that we faced. So we had to take this very collaborative, very group-oriented experience and move it online at the same time that our students who we were accustomed and they were accustomed to all being in New York City, they found themselves scattered all over the world in a variety of different time zones. And some of them, some of them living with their children, some of them living with their parents, some of them living with their friends in ways they didn't expect to. And so the, the challenge for us was how do we create this rich experience where students would still feel that they'd have all the benefits of the campus-based learning experience and then maintain that. And then to top it off, we had this additional challenge that about uh, three quarters of the students were starting their first semester of graduate school. 
So it wasn't as if they had been on campus and left. They had never been to the campus. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the things we wanted to try to get them to get a feel of is, well, you're now in graduate school. Welcome to Teachers College at Columbia and join our community. So we had a lot of conflicting challenges we were trying to negotiate and uh, and get through the semester and get through the curriculum. So the, the impetus for the conference presentation was really for us, those of us who were teaching, to reflect back upon what was our journey like in transforming this class and how do we think we did. Absolutely. And so you said it's a project-based class. So in addition to the fact that of course, people were used to talking and meeting with their, with you and their colleagues on the project in person. But in addition to that, what specifically about the project aspect of it was important to have on campus? What made it particular to be in one location? What was the project? Yeah, there were there there were a couple of challenges involved. So, in addition to being a project based, the semester was organized in terms of four projects that students would move through. The projects would get more difficult as they move through them, but we had always done projects as group experiences. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that we have an individual student sitting by themselves working on the project. We form small groups, small teams, and our teams are typically four or five students working in a team. And in addition to working in a team, we also had them using agile design methods. So moving quickly with rapid iteration, So we had to try to achieve two things. We had to try to build the teams using people who had never worked together before and maybe weren't even in the same time zone, although we tried to get them in the same time zone to formulate the teams who didn't know each other, coming from lots of different institutions and workplaces to come to the campus for the first time. So they didn't have a shared base of experience. And then we wanted them to use, we were using the scrum method. So we, Mm -hmm. we wanted them to practice scrum methodology. And, you know, one of the things about that methodology is it's developed and it works quite well, although it's challenging, it works quite well for people who are in the same location and are physically present every day. Yes. So there are a whole set of daily, you know, there's a daily rituals. Yeah. Yeah. And so we had to somehow figure out how to get them used to that, even Mm -hmm. though they weren't going to be in the same place at the same time every day. And also how to collaborate. You know, we all talk, of course, because we all aspire to collaboration. So we talk about collaboration a lot, but we know that collaboration is really difficult. And particularly if you've got a challenging project, all of a sudden be exposed to brand new people, Mm -hmm. don't have much in common with potentially and don't know much about. You're at a distance. Maybe, you know, maybe you're texting them. Maybe you're on a Zoom call with them. But how do we develop? this kind of real collaborative sense. So those were the kind of things that we were working through. And, uh, and like I said, we, had, we, we felt pretty good doing it on campus because obviously on campus, we're all physically present. We can watch each other, we can watch each other work. People have problems, they drop by, we, we kind of touch base on things. And we had no idea how we were gonna make that same thing happen online. Mm. And so what did you find? What are some of the highlights? And of course, you're going to go into this in more detail in your talk, but what are some highlights on how you made this happen? Yeah. So a couple of things, and I would say, you know, we tried to be thoughtful about it. And, uh, you know, I'd like to be able to say that everything we tried worked really well. 
and nothing that we, we left out or included uh, was problematic. But in fact, most of the things we tried seemed to work a little bit. And it was really a set of things together that came together to, it, I think, make it a pretty good experience. So, you know, the first thing we did was we tried to get to know the students by having them tell us a lot about themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and this is typical in online classes. There's an introductory period where you ask people to tell us a little bit of bio biographical information. But the key piece of information we had to get from everyone is in what time zone will you be working and living? Yes. Uh, and so our first challenge was we had students in North America, we had them in South America, we had a student in Europe, we had a student on the West Coast, and then we had probably 50% of the students in Asia. So we had as much as a 12 or 13 hour time difference in what we were working on. We decided that based upon that, although we might ordinarily create teams that are very diverse in terms of where they're from, uh, we decided that we were going to use time zones to organize students so that they'd at least all be awake and asleep at the same time for their group work. And that that turned out to actually be a good idea. We had one or two teams that had to span time zones, and that was a real challenge for them. But the teams mm -hmm. that were all together in the same time zone worked really well. We minimized the number of whole class sessions that we had. So, you know, we might normally have a weekly whole class session. In our case, we decided we were going to have five or six of those whole class sessions where everyone okay. would gather. And that was just because the scheduling was really challenging for people. Absolutely. With 12 hour time differences. Yeah. For, for some students, you know, like for some students, we're saying good morning. Yes. And other students were saying good evening. And Absolutely. we either met very early in the morning, so 8 o'clock in New York, 8 a.m., or we met late 8 or 9 p.m. in China and Asia, and or we did the reverse. And, and so different groups had to either get up early or stay up later than they might ordinarily. And that worked out reasonably well. But what we did is we shifted a lot of the activity to the small group level. You know, by minimizing the whole class sessions, we then increase the number of small group sessions. And what we did to do that was we turned control of those sessions and the scheduling of those sessions over to the teams. Instead of the instructional team scheduling a session and planning it and programming it and inviting people to it, the project leader of that particular project would schedule a session for their teams and then whenever they needed a member of the instructional team, they would invite us to one of their sessions. Okay, interesting. We kind of flipped the whole model so that the teams were driving the interaction with the instructional team. We didn't know if that would work. It turned out it worked quite well. Some teams called on us more than others, but that also gave us a sense of who was struggling and who needed a little more help. We also did some collaborative work where people worked across teams. So for some projects, a team would be uh, paired with the second team and the second team would come in as consultants to the first team and give oh, them advice and feedback on their project. So they got to know, mostly they got really well acquainted with people on their own team, mm -hmm. uh, but then they got a little bit of knowledge of people on some of the other teams and how the other teams were doing. And then when we had the whole class meeting, the different teams shared their, their products and reported out. So that was one of the strategies that, that worked really well. We also set up a whole class Slack instance, and that gave people the ability to communicate constantly 
um, but not fill everybody's email box at the same yes. time. And that turned out to be another strategy that worked really well. There were some strategies that worked less well. We probably underestimated how much work we needed to do to actually induct people into the Scrum method at a distance. When we were on campus, it was pretty easy to keep jumping in and coaching. And I think at a distance, that became more difficult. And we probably needed to spend more time at the outset helping people understand that method. And, you, you know, that method... For people who work together for years in the same uh, company, it's really challenging to move to Agile anyway. And at a distance, and for students who've never done it, it was even more challenging. So, But they got better as, as the semester went on. Yes, that's a good thing to note, because certainly in a different educational setup, some things require more time, some things require less time, and different ways of inducting and getting people familiar with it. So that's a good thing, a good learning to take away. What surprised you the most or what did you find most interesting in this entire process? Yeah, I think the thing that was really interesting, and this is in some ways, this is another motivation for this particular presentation and sharing it in, in, in the conference, is how impactful this process can be for students who are at a distance. We got a lot of great feedback from the students. You know, one of the things we had them do for each of the each of the projects was not only turn in their project report, but also do a self-reflection report. Mm -hmm. And tell us what the experience has been like for you, what's it been like working in your team, what's working well, what's not working well. And the feedback was really incredibly revealing. And students were, and I think they were genuine, so I, there was no reason for them not to be. They were pretty enthusiastic. In fact, okay. much more enthusiastic than I had any reason to expect they would, they would be. And they were particularly enthusiastic about the collegial ex experience, getting to work with another group of students who were also, for the most part, first-year students coming, you know, coming into the institution and into the program. And we got terrific comments like saying, I know these are going to be, you know, these are going to be my professional friends for life now. And, you know, now I have to say, not every team was a dream team, but it is possible. And I would say more than half of the teams had a really positive experience mm -hmm. and really came to value each other as colleagues. You found a way to really have that human bonding and connection over distance through all the changes that you made in the way you structured the class and the tools that you brought into it. Yeah, and that was really surprising. I mean, that that was a pleasant surprise. That's one of the things we hoped would happen. Yes. But, you know, I think we had no right to really expect that it would happen. And in fact, it did. And these were, of course, you know, given what was going on in the world, it was a challenging time for everyone in their regular outside of class life as well. Yes. So the fact that they could have a good experience in the class was particularly rewarding mm -hmm. to those of us who were on the instructional team. That's great. And I, I like some of those strategies a lot that you just mentioned, where changed the number of classes that you actually offered, and rather you came to the individual groups, which I think is such a great, unique way of restructuring, recognizing that at a distance, things don't resonate quite the same way. So actually, it was more useful to jump into the classes and give more bespoke instruction rather than having the big classes. So these types of changes are really fascinating and interesting to hear. What do you hope that people will take away from your talk? So I think there are a couple of lessons that, that we were pretty excited about that we, that we take for ourselves. So one is, I think those of us who were teaching uh, this way, and I should say that my colleagues and I who were teaching 
we've been doing online instruction on and off for 20 years. So we weren't brand new to online instruction. More recently, we had gravitated more toward on-campus instruction. And I think one of the takeaways was this really renewed our interest in online instruction um, and online classes. And I think it renewed it because we were early adopters of online learning. We got a little disappointed and then gravitated back to on-campus learning just because of the flexibility. Mm-hmm. And I think in this case, we, were, we had kind of renewed interest in what we can do online. And I think in some ways, the online experience was superior mm-hmm. to the on-campus experience. We got to, we got, for example, just as you mentioned, with allowing the groups to invite us to the sessions, being able to turn over that kind of direction and control to them and let them drive it. We probably wouldn't be able to do that as well on campus as we, because our schedules were crazier on campus, right? Our, our schedules were difficult as well as the students' schedules on campus. Absolutely. Whereas online, all of us were home in the pandemic. So we were, we were more available than we might ordinarily be. And I think part of that takeaway is, wow, what can we learn from this experience that made it really rewarding for us and for students that we can then continue when we go back to campus? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think some of us are interested in continuing to teach online because we think that's really valuable. But even if we go back to fully on, uh, you know, on campus classes, what parts of what we did would we stay with? You know, one of the other experiences, you know, teaching online is you get to see everyone who shows up. Whereas in a big class, you may not get to see everyone who shows up. You get to identify them very early on, get to know their names really easily and get to interact with them one-on-one. And I think that was really helpful to us. And I think we developed, and it seems strange because we're all at a distance, but I think we developed closer relationships with some of the students than we would if we were all milling about the campus, hundreds of other students in our midst. So I think, I think figuring out how to, how to take the, the best part of the experience, continue building it online, and then taking the parts of it that we can also transfer to on-campus learning and continue building it there. I think big rewards on both sides. Definitely. And that's a great reminder as well to everybody who has been going through this, that time for reflection to be able to take the best parts out and create a combined better experience is a very, very positive thing. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the details of what you did and how what you learned over the course of this year. I mean, just from the things you said, there is already great nuggets for people to take away and think about incorporating in their own teaching. But more broadly, I just want to ask you, what are you excited about in the learning space as you look forward? So you know, I've, I've, been, I've been focusing on learning for a long time mm-hmm. and been watching people's thinking about learning evolve. And one of the things that I think is pretty exciting is we now have a much broader and more diverse set of approaches to thinking about learning than we mm-hmm. had 15, 20 years ago. Yes. And I think what, we, what we're entering into is a period, not where we decide that one approach is superior to another, or superior to all others, but where we think about having a broad repertoire Mm -hmm. um, and then determining where do we want to apply a particular approach, either for a particular audience, a particular student segment, or conditions. You know, how do we get more facile at doing that as instructors? 
so that we've got a, a, a really good toolkit and we can tailor the kind of learning experience to meet the needs of learners. Yes, I like that, to have a wide repertoire. And certainly through necessity, people have been able to experience a much wider spectrum of ways of teaching and learning. I would really like that to think about it as a wide repertoire of what to use from your tool belt in creating the best learning experience possible. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for joining me and sharing your your insights and experience in creating what sounds like an absolutely incredible project-based learning experience, something that is is quite hard to transition online. You have a lot of great tips on how to do it well. So thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for thank you for inviting me, and I hope to see you at the conference. Absolutely, and hopefully next year in New York. That would be great <laughs> as well. Yeah, it would be wonderful. Thank you. Take care. And my next guest is Lucia Stager from Kaplan Professional in Sydney, Australia. Her talk is titled "How to Design Compliance Training." that is engaging for frontline workers. Thank you so much, Lucia, for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. Can you give a little bit of an introduction about who you are? Certainly. As General Manager of Teaching and Learning at at Captain Professional, I'm accountable for all education programs, including uh, executive higher education and uh, vocational programs delivered at Captain Professional. In in addition to that, to deliver the portfolio, I lead multiple teams who write, design and develop program content. We ensure compliance with multiple regulators and manage the delivery of programs, both face-to-face and online. And Kaplan Professional is doing professional learning for banking professionals, is that correct? That's right. That's right. So Kaplan Professional delivers their programs in the financial services sector here Mm -hmm. in Australia which are primarily banking institutions, insurance companies, and most of these organisations, the employers send their learners to capital professional for their accredited and compliance programs. You're going to talk how to design compliance training that is engaging, which is, of course, very important because so often these types of topics, you know, they're kind of checkbox learning that you go through but you're going to talk about ways of engaging people and really helping them to learn in this profession. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're going to talk about? Yes, certainly. The essence of my talk is the story of how we took an accreditation program that was really not working well at all. Uh, it It was boring. It was very dry for our learners and how we turned it around to provide our learners with limited work experience, because they are frontline, entry level, the best interactive and scenario-based learning that we could put together. So the design and development started back in 2013, and throughout the last seven to eight years, this program has had five iterations, where with each iteration, the learner's experience was really the focus whilst balancing the accreditation requirements. So with each iteration, we we consulted with our clients extensively and ensured that their feedback was captured and implemented wherever possible in the next version of of the program. So the consultation with our clients was really, really important. It was thorough and it was frequent to ensure that they were happy with the final program. Mm. So we had to balance the, the needs of the learner as well as the needs 
of what our regulators were saying in terms of being compliant. Absolutely. So that was that that proved to be a little bit tricky, but but over the, the seven or eight years, we were able to do that effectively where it's actually, we've received excellent feedback from our clients, but also from our learners where, where they're saying that the scenario-based design is very engaging. Um, they're actually learning something. It's bite-size. It's not dry. It's not, you know, you're not clicking from one screen to another. You're actually interacting whilst you're, you're going through the learning. Fantastic. So you've touched on a few of the things that I can imagine makes it very engaging, which is that it's interactive. You're going into a scenario, all really important learning strategies. Can you give a little bit more of a snapshot of how you took something that, as you said, can be a very dry topic to get through in a workplace to study? How did you make it engaging? What were some of the strategies that you used? So originally this this program was paper-based. So the first thing that we do did was we put it into an authoring tool. That was the first thing. The other thing that we did was we actually put in some interactive activities such as drag and drop activities. We had branching scenarios. So we, we chunked down the modules. So we have 15 modules. We chunked those down. And at the end of each of the modules, we had quizzes throughout, throughout mm-hmm. so formative assessments. And then we had, we had summative assessment as well at the end. And so the feedback from the learners was that they felt like the scenarios were realistic in engaging them in their workplace. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, so the scenarios that we created were, it, it was actually based, the narrative was based on Romeo and Juliet. Oh, really? Where, wow. Yeah, yeah. Where it was, there was a, a, a smaller organisation and then there was a, a very large organisation. And in between, there was a smaller, a kind of like a boutique family kind of business. And the idea was that they would learn, they would go through the learning and then eventually be employed by the, the larger organisation. Mm-hmm. So the scenarios were such that the context was the financial services, the context was banks, but it was this journey for the learner that they, they started small. Let's learn a little bit. Let's learn mm-hmm. the foundations. Then let's move to the, you know, medium-sized business. And, now, and, then, and then once you've learned a little bit there, let's move to the larger business so that it was they were gaining the knowledge and the skills as they were going through but also moving across in different workplaces. Absolutely. Well, that's that's interesting. I like that. Bringing in the progression and the storyline. Yes. And really, that is a very engaging way to apply your learning and to see yourself grow, which is yes. wonderful. Very interesting. Yes. So what do you find, what aspects of this do you find most interesting of this program? For me, it was actually the design and the development of this program at each iteration it was improving and enhancing so it was going from strength to strength and the interesting part is actually the process that we undertook over several years to improve and enhance the program I think often as education providers we have the expertise and our clients are looking to us to develop a program however for this particular program the process that we went through was very much a partnership where we worked very, very closely with our, with our clients to ensure that it integrated with their programs, but also specifically 
that are integrated in, in with their um, induction program. Okay. So because it's for frontline workers or entry level, this program is part of their induction, their 90 days or 60 day induction program. So we needed it to integrate with that, with their in-house mm. induction programs. So we worked really closely with our clients. You know, they, they weren't seen as separate. They worked, you know, we worked hand in hand. So I think that the, that process was very, very interesting for us because we're often seen to have the expertise and then we just hand it over and off they go. But it was very much a collaboration with our major clients. And this is the major banks that we have here in Australia. Right. So a collaboration and continuously testing with them and getting the insights and information on what they do going on a back and forth design process with them. Yes. Okay, yes. wonderful. So yes. you were really designing with the user, with two users, really, on the one hand, with the user being the client, where it needs to fit into being able to teach what is important for them in their business, but also with the students, because you said that you were also working with the students to continuously find out what is resonating in the program. Is it working? Is it not working? Yes, very, very much so. And I, and I think that that's really interesting part of having both. Do you find anything surprising in that process of continuously iterating with the user, both with the client and with the student? I guess not so much surprising, but I think, I think that we had to be open to doing it that way and that we had to have really excellent communication between the two parties because I think that that meant that we were able to listen to their to we're able to listen to their feedback and not just dis disregard the feedback so anytime that we would get you know some suggestions or we would have meetings we were very open to receiving that feedback and I think that that's why it was it was so successful that's great and so in your talk you will be describing this program in more detail and what do yep. you hope that people will be taking away? I hope that people will come away with having an understanding of the process that we went through, because I will describe what we did in the seven to eight years, but also thinking about how to innovate and how we innovate frequently with students and with clients in partnership. How does that actually work? So I think that that's probably the, the biggest takeaway because I think if you do have both, both parties coming together, you, you are going to have buy-in and it is a true partnership yes. in terms of developing programs. Absolutely. It's a true partnership. There's much mm. greater buy-in and also a much greater product in the end, isn't it? With everybody learning how to make the best uh, best outcome, which sounds like that's exactly what you did. Yes, that's that's right. That's right. And I'll, and I'll be sharing I'll be sharing some data in the presentation as well. Uh, to date, for example, we've had over thirty five thousand students complete this program. Amazing, wonderful. That's really great. Well, and more broadly, what are you excited about in the learning space? What are you looking forward to? Yeah, so what, what I find exciting in the learning space are the conversations that colleges and universities are having about engaging with industry and businesses to enhance their courses. Mm -hmm. So in, in Australia currently, the conversation continues to be reported in daily newsletters. So it's top of mind at the moment. I'm, I'm interested in graduate employability opportunities and how universities, education providers are equipping graduates for their first, first job. Are the courses taught at universities relevant for graduates in the workplace? I think that that's very 
That's a really interesting topic. And for mature age students, which are primarily the students at Cap Professional looking to come back to study or change careers, are we providing the most relevant courses to equip them, to equip them in their new role or in their next role, whether it is to reskill or upskill in their mm. existing role? So I think that that's very, very important. And the learning that we put together for either graduates or mature age students returning to study is very, very important. How relevant is it to them? Yeah, I think that that's really, really important. Definitely. It's absolutely huge. And as you said, collaboration between workplace learning institutions and how does that learning take place effectively throughout the life cycle is increasingly more important. And you're very much right at the center of that. I look forward to hearing more about how you are designing these courses and working with the clients and the students. So thank you very, very much for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you for, thank you for having me. Thank you, Lucia.